People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. Welcome to our book show. We've got a very packed show next hour. Get your pens out, have a piece of paper ready to write down the titles and the authors of the books that will interest you. There's something for everybody. If you do miss any of the titles on the show, you drive and you can't write down, just go to Facebook, search for People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. Go to our posts and you will see pictures of the covers of all the books that we're going to be discussing today. A very good uh, reference source when you go shopping for books. Just pull out your smartphone, look look us up on Facebook, and you'll find the book that's right for you somewhere on our Facebook page. To start off, some really great novels... I read The Winter Soldier, the heart of our summer here in South Africa, the week when the temperatures were everywhere between 35 and 40 degrees. So just paging through and reading The Winter Soldier did a little bit to bring a little bit of coolness into my reading. The book is written by Daniel Mason, published by Mantle. It's a World War I uh, novel, and it is also set in Vienna, just before World War I, during the war, we, the action actually moves to a field hospital in the Carpathian Mountains, and then it comes back to Vienna at the end of World War I in the post-war era. The Winter Soldier focuses on Lucius. He's a young medical student just when World War I breaks out. Lucius's family are Polish aristocracy but they are living in the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the city of Vienna exerted a magnetic pull on the subjects of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Vienna became a world capital on the same level today that New York and London are world capitals. The greatest minds, the wealthiest families from the empire lived in Vienna, and that's the Vienna that Lucius lives in. Before World War I, everything revolved around the royal family and the aristocracy, and that's the world that Lucius's family lives in. His mother's portrait was painted by Gustav Klimt, and he mentions in the book that he himself was part of that portrait, but when later Gustav Klimt paintings had that beautiful gold leaf put in. His mother had him covered up by gold leaf in the family's Gustav Klimt portrait of his mother. This is the world that he was born into, and his parents, as aristocracy, thought that Lucius would have a laugh amongst the aristocracy. But he has a passion for medicine, and he goes to Vienna University where he wants to learn to become a doctor against the family's wishes, because this was a time when the aristocracy in the Austrian-Hungarian Empire derived their wealth from their land and not from professions. World War I breaks out, and Lucius, and with many other medical students, taken out of university and sent to the war front to man the field hospitals where the, the victims of the war those who are wounded, those who are close to death, those who are experiencing what hasn't yet been defined as post-traumatic stress disorder 
are being brought into the hospitals. And he's sent to the Carpathian Mountains, very, very rural, underdeveloped part of the empire where there's very, very little semblance of urban civilization. And he becomes the doctor in this field hospital. When he gets to the field hospital, it's run by a nun, Sister Marguerite. And a lot about the book is his relationship with this nun and with the team of workers in this hospital. We'll be back a little bit more of The Winter Soldier straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We're talking about Daniel Mason's book, The Winter Soldier. Daniel Mason is the best-selling author of The Piano Tuner. That was his previous book. And the new book, his new book, The Winter Soldier, set before, during, and after World War I, where Lucius, a member of the Polish aristocracy living in Vienna, is sent as a medical student to become a hospital doctor at a field hospital at the war front. The the Carpathian Mountains is the setting for most of this book, most of this novel. And one night deep in winter, some peasants who live in the Carpathian Mountains bring a man who they found comatose, unable to talk, basically almost in a coma. They bring him, this is the winter soldier, he's found in the depth of winter, close to death, to the hospital. And this winter soldier becomes an obsession for Lucius, the young doctor, trying to get this man who doesn't speak try speak, trying to rehabilitate what really is a very severe case of post-traumatic stress disorder and to somehow bring him out of his comatose state. The war moves on, the war comes to an end and uh, Lucius goes back to Vienna and in a short piece that I'm going to read we see how Daniel Mason, the author, is able to show the absolute changes in Austria as soon as the war comes to an end. He's at home. He's talking to his mother, who is a very cold lady, very, very few maternal instincts in her repertoire. And she says to her son, I think think that you should take a wife. He's sitting and eating a meal with his mother. His knife paused mid-dumpling. A wife? He managed to swallow what he was chewing. Mother, yes, go on. The house of Habsburg, she told him, was at death's door, as certainly he knew. The future no longer lay in title, but in capital. His brother's countless wives, his sister's Margave husbands, all bearers of titles to a world that wouldn't survive the year. She, his mother, had seen the future. It sat prettily on the plush sofas of the drawing rooms of men with controlling stock in steelworks, oil fields and mines. He forced himself to take another bite. You can't be serious, mother. My son knows me as someone who likes to joke. She had not touched her plate. He saw that she was waiting. Cautiously he advanced. 
I still have to spend most nights at the hospital with the POW return. Things have only gotten worse. It is hardly what one would expect of a devoted husband. I'm sorry, she interrupted. Did someone use the word devoted? My son is one of the few men in Vienna who isn't a cripple or a shirker. I think your wife would be quite happy with whatever she is getting. This is two-thirds through the book, a conversation that just shows how Daniel Mason is feeling the pulse of history and shows the shifting alliances in society, the allegiances from the royal family of the Habsburgs to capital, from title to capital, as it's so clearly put. This goes through the whole book, that society in Vienna that before the war was at the cutting edge of social development, academics, arts, all different fields. It's the city that gave us Clinton Marla, and it's the city that gave us um, Freud. This was the city that gave birth to psychology and to Schumpeter, business analysis and studies. This is also the same city that lost its imperial capital status at the end of World War I and just became the capital of the Republic of Austria. And all these historical tidal waves, uh, tsunamis, are very, very delicately put into the book. But the book really is a war story, a medical war story, World War I, set in the Carpathian Mountains, it's a beautiful part of Europe, almost fairy tale country, but the issues that are raised in the book, the fighting of war, the absolute waste of lives, the huge sacrifices that people made, also a love story at its very core, and also dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder in the early parts of the 20th century. All of this together makes a beautiful and very rewarding read. That's The Winter Soldier by Daniel Mason, published by Mantle, and it is available. The next book to talk about is also published by Mantle, and it's totally, totally different. The book is called The Good Sister, and it's by Morgan Jones. Now, Morgan Jones is the author of now four books. When his first book came out, An Agent of Deceit, I read it, I reviewed it here on the radio, and I found I was a newly, uh, I'd, I'd newly discovered an author whose career I would follow through the books that he would write. I've reviewed all his, four, all his three books here on Chai FM, An Agent of Deceit, then The Jackal's Share, and then The Searcher. His fourth book, The Good Sister, has came out about five or six months ago. And it is a very, very topical book. Um, it's a very, very exciting book, but it's not an easy book because the issues that it deals with are so difficult for us to get our minds around. The, the story, it's a novel, but it's based on true facts. It's, it revolves around Sophia Munir. She is a 17-year-old girl. Her parents lived there. She was born in uh, Egypt, in Cairo. Her parents were Coptic Christians. And her mother then suffered from bipolar disorder. 
and the family moved to London where her father had to cut short his medical studies in order to become a pharmacist in order to support his wife who was basically uh, unable to live her her life because of her, her mental illness. Sophia becomes very, very isolated from her family, from her father, from her mother, and she somehow finds through the internet radical Islam. Even though she's a Coptic Christian, she's still an Arab, and uh, Arabic is her, her mother tongue. And she decides to convert to Islam, but not to the moderate strains of Islam, to the ISIS fundamentalist strains of Islam. And then she decides to leave London and to make her way to Syria and to become basically a jihadi or the wife of a jihadi in ISIS's mission to change the world. And her father, Abraham, cannot let go and he follows her to Syria. This is the kernel of the book. It's called The Good Sister. We'll be back. I want to read some of the author Chris Morgan Jones's thoughts why he wrote this book straight after the ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We're talking about a book called The Good Sister by Chris Morgan Jones. His previous books, he named himself Chris Morgan Jones. Here he's dropped the Chris, so he's just Morgan Jones. And for over a decade, Morgan Jones worked for the world's largest investigations company, where he specialized in Russian matters and international disputes. Under the name of Chris Morgan Jones, he wrote three novels about that world, An Agent, an agent of Deceit, The Jackal's Share, and The Searcher. Um, each of those books were set in a different country, so An Agent of Deceit very strongly set in Russia, and Russia's the oligarchs' tentacles spreading across Europe. There were some scenes in that book that are still can't forget, even though it's about six years since I read the book, like the birthday party of a Russian oligarch, six-year-old daughter, which was just based, obviously based on truth, but it was so over the top. Those type of things just don't get dislodged from your memory. The Jackal Share set in Dubai, and then The Searcher, which was set in the Caucasus Mountains, and I can just see the pictures that he wrote with words of the remoteness of these mountains and the search for this. The, the book was called The Searcher, The Search for a Person. Uh, the Good Sister is his first novel writing just as Morgan Jones. He lives in London with his wife and two children. And this is what he says in discussion about The Good Sister. At the beginning of 2015, three London schoolgirls traveled to Syria to join Islamic State. The oldest was only 16, and all three were described in the hundreds of newspaper reports as straight-A students from apparently happy families. They weren't alone. In 2015, at least 56 women from the UK made the same journey, and the pattern was similar across Europe and beyond. Men had signed up in greater numbers, but the women's individual stories were somehow more shocking. Unlike so many of the men, they weren't petty criminals didn't have mental health problems, hadn't struggled with addiction. The girls from Bethnal Green were like our daughters, our wives, our friends. They were like us, and they forced us to ask a distressing question. What was wrong with our society that three happy, bright young women should choose to embrace all that violence and terror? Or were they simply devils? This is Chris Morgan-Jones, the author of The Good Sister, 
explaining why he wrote the book. The question fascinated me because it touched on so much, faith, education, multiculturalism, the recent history of the West and the Middle East. But in particular, it seemed to shine a light on the growing sense that everywhere and in different ways, young people were rejecting the world their parents had shaped for them. I have two teenage children, and for every opportunity my generation has created, I see two deep problems it will take other generations to solve. I began to read as many first-hand sources from inside ISIS as I could, blogs, Twitter, accounts, the oddly candid records of these women's lives, and unbidden, a voice began to settle in my head, clever but naive, full of righteous anger, desperate to find some meaning in life beyond the naked commercialism it saw all around in London, pushed by honest impulses but without the judgment to predict where they might lead. Smart enough to identify the problem but too passionate to understand that certain solutions would be so much worse. A very teenage voice in fact. In The Good Sister, this belongs to Sophia, who narrates half the book. I wrote her narrative first, driven forward by the developing character, uh, her developing character as she was driven to Syria by her convictions, and in the process found myself drawn into territory I wasn't expecting to explore and conclusions I wasn't expecting to reach. This alien creature who seemed so hard and unknowable began to reveal herself as something altogether more human and more vulnerable. I'm reading from an article written by Morgan Jones, the author of The Good Sister, why he wrote the book. I've lost the quotation, but someone once said that one of the things a novel can usefully do is try to find sympathy for a monster, a character who repels us all for good reason. That is Sophia, who does terrible things herself and condones far worse in others. The world condemns her, but her father, without a clear idea of his intentions and acting on faith and love alone, follows her to Raqqa, at once disgusted, disbelieving and full of a natural fear that he is responsible. He does his best to move towards some kind of understanding and in the process, I hope, takes us with him at least some of the way. The story, the story is set in September 2014, eight months after ISIS occupied Raqqa, at a time when its momentum was at its peak and hundreds of fighters a month were travelling to join up. Four years on, the organisation is finished as a territorial power, and the book is in part a historical document. But the aftermath of the whole episode is still playing itself out. A few months ago, an 18-year-old would-be ISIS recruit became one of the youngest women to be convicted of terrorism offences in the UK. In Iraq, the trials of hundreds of female members of ISIS are being conducted swiftly, decisively, and without mercy. The mechanisms that drew these women into the organisation are still working and in operation, and the world that they rejected has barely changed. What took women like Sophia to Syria still has a terrible currency. So that's part of the ideas behind the writing of the book, The Good Sister. There have been a number of books published about this phenomenon. Western girls raised in the West, in Islamic Muslim families, traveling to ISIS hold areas within Syria. So it's an investigation of a very current uh, and very contemporary and very real issue. The book itself is narrated 
half by in inter interweaving chapters, one by Sophia, one by her father Abraham, then back to Sophia, then back to Abraham. So we see the story from both sides. Uh, a powerful story, but Morgan Jones chooses to use the thriller structure more than just the literary novel in order to propel this narrative all the way through to its very, very thrilling end. Uh, It's a good book, and I do think that uh, if people want to understand what's happening in the Middle East, Europe and the Middle East, and even here in South Africa, it gives us a good insight. Now, coming back home to South Africa, a book written towards the end of last year by Fred Bridgeland, who is, Fred, who is Fred Bridgeland? He's a veteran journalist, a correspondent, who has covered South Africa for UK newspapers, um, for the Daily Telegraph, and for the New Scotsman. And at the time, he, he has been reinvestigating the story of Winnie Mandela, and he delivers explosive new information in his new book, Truth, Lies, and Alibis. The best way to put any of this across is in Fred Bridgeland's own words. He's a veteran journalist, African correspondent, so he's covered the continent for a long time. In his introduction, this is what he writes. He starts with a quote from Louis de Benier, who we interviewed last year on People of the Book on 101.9 High FM for his new book. And Louis de Benier says, The ultimate truth is that history ought to consist only of the anecdotes of the little people who are caught up in it. Two disturbing events within a short time of each other in southern Africa a quarter century ago shaped my life and thinking forever. To a significant extent, they laid the groundwork for this book, Truth, Lies and Alibis, a Winnie Mandela story. First, my closest friend in Angola, Tito Chingunji, a fine man by any standards, was murdered on the orders of Jonas Savimbi, leader of the Angolan guerrilla movement UNITA. Tito and his brother-in-law, Wilson dos Santos, another popular young underground soldier, were taken by General Kami Pena, Savimbi's nephew, to a forest glade where an execution squad bludgeoned them to death with their rifle butts. Tito's wife, Raquel, was also beaten to death. Tito's, Unita's, Tito, Unita's foreign secretary and Raquel had five children, including twin boys, Katimba and Jonatao, not yet a, a year old. All five children were also killed. Other members of the Chingunji family, including Tito's mother and father, were executed. The hideous slaughter went on. By the time it finished, there was not a single Chingunji left alive in Savimbi's territory. In all, an estimated 50 members of the family died. I received death threats, and a member of my family was threatened with mutilation. The reasons behind these and other killings ordered by Savimbi are bizarre and complex. They include wild allegations of witchcraft, sexual jealousies, and power paranoia. They are the subjects of a part-completed new book by myself. I'm reading from the book Truth, Lies, and Alibis, a Winnie Mandela story, Written by Fred Bridgeland, published by Tafelberg, reading the introduction. Savimbi lied, lied, and lied again. He told people, including governments, that provided his movement with help, that Tito was alive long after he had been killed. He even wrote to U.S. Secretary of State James Baker, alleging that I had plotted 
in collaboration with a young Angolan woman and junior members of the CIA to assassinate him using the powdered remains of a chameleon. Tito and I had gone through tough times together in the course of the long war in Angola. He had become much loved by my family on visits to our homes in Edinburgh and London. So his murder and those of his family came as an immense shock to me, the sheer, mad, destructive, cruel wastefulness of it. I quickly knew the meaning of bereavement, a wrenching, terrible deprivation of a friendship that had endured difficulties and had, I hoped, many rich years to run. All my efforts and subterfuges to save his life failed. His end must have been as lonely as Steve Biko's. His life had been, stu- has, had been snuffed out with much the same callousness. I found myself lying awake at night wanting to reach out to him in his unmarked grave and hug him and tell him he was loved, and that in some scheme of things his efforts and suffering had, meant, had real meaning. I miss him and his kind and wise manner to this day. It was against this traumatic backdrop this traumatic backdrop, backdrop that in the same year, 1991, I began reporting for my newspapers, the London Sunday Telegraph and the Scotsman, then Scotland's national newspaper, on the trial in Johannesburg of Winnie, Mande- Winnie Mandela on charges of kidnapping and assaulting a 14-year-old boy, Stompy Muketsi Sipe, now referred from now simply referred to as Stompy Muketsi. I was approached at the time by a British publisher to write a biography of Mrs. Mandela. I declined. I had no inside information or special insights to share, only facts out in the public arena that were common knowledge. However, when witnesses and co-accused in the trial began disappearing, with police apparently doing little to find them, and as lawyers began to advance unlikely alibis, all my internal warning bells began to clang loud. It all reminded me of the steep Tito Savimbi learning curve, although the two cases were not precisely comparable. And then a few months later, in that same year, 1991, I found in Zambia, with a bit of journalistic initiative and a big slice of luck, a youth who had been dubbed the missing witness from Mrs. Mandela's trial. He had been abducted from South Africa by an African National Congress Special Operations Unit and imprisoned in Zambia without charge or trial by the country's president, Kenneth Kaunda. With the help of Kaunda's successor, as Zambian head of state Frederick Chiluba and a British MP. The missing witness, Katiza Sebekulu, was freed from prison and I conducted long interviews with him in Britain and Sierra Leone. His story, repeated many times since then, was that he had watched Mrs. Mandela stab Stompy Muketsi to death and that she was responsible for other murders, including that of her own medical doctor. Having listened to Sebekulu's story, I finally agreed to write a book about Winnie Mandela. Here was an account in which the apparent truth was more dramatic than fiction. I also wrote and narrated an hour-long BBC television documentary based on the book, in which Kaunda admitted imprisoning Sebekulu at Nelson Mandela's request to make sure that he was unable to give evidence in Mrs. Mandela's trial. The Winnie book took the story only up to mid-1997, before Mrs. Mandela was subpoenaed to appear before a special Truth and Reconciliation Commission hearing into the activities of her notorious bodyguard, 
the Mandela United Football Club. It left innumerable questions unanswered. After Korean journalism across four continents, I found I had grown more concerned with the stories of little and unimportant people rather than those about the rich, famous and high-ranking living in their self-important bubbles. Many little people died on Savimbi's command, and in the Winnie Mandela saga, little people suffered appallingly, both at her hand and as a result of the shortcomings of the police and justice systems. Laws, after all, are spider webs through which the big flies pass and the little ones get caught. Over the years, many of these unimportant people helped and trusted me. Their stories, I believe, deserve to be told. It is the only way I can repay most of them. This book, despite its title, is more for and about them than about Mrs. Mandela, who died as the work was being completed. I also believe that new Younger generations need to know and try to understand the full story. So that's the introduction of Truth, Lies and Alibis, a Winnie Mandela story by Fred Bridgeland. And the book is the result of years, decades of amassing evidence from the little people about the truth about Winnie Mandela. It's a very powerful book. Very topical because, as he says, while it was being prepared for publication, Winnie Mandela did die. And then the way that her legacy has been changed in the first year after her death does call for some rational, evidence-based work upon which her longer-term legacy can be founded. So very hard-cutting. Very, very, very contemporary, very appropriate, very immediate in the South African context. That is truth, lies, and alibis. The next book we're going to be looking at, also nonfiction, is called Why Social Media is Ruining Your Life. It's by Catherine Ormerod, and it's published by Castle. It's a small book, but it's a very powerful book. And once again, the best way to deal with this book is just to read a little bit about from the book. Like most, this is Why Social Media is Ruining Your Life, Catherine Armorod. Uh, the statistics that are presented to us on a daily basis, the percentage of people in the West, in Western countries who have a cell phone, uh, the number of teenagers, the amount of time that's been spent on cell phones, especially on social media, not just other apps, and the detriment that this has on our lives, on our mental health, is staggering. But we just all seem to process the information, file it away somewhere deep in our minds, and just continue to engage with social media. We need to do something. So why social media is ruining your life, which comes with lots and lots of practical tips to deal with that ruination of our lives. It's a very important book for people to read. The book is written very strongly with the, uh, by women and very strongly for women. A lot about a lot of the, the a lot of the slants is about women and the effect of social media on women. But it is also just as important for men to read as well. So, from the introduction, this is what Catherine Omarod says. 
Like most forms of media technology, it's easy to argue that the new social media platforms are more a mirror to a complex human psyche than fundamentally destructive. However, the idea that the new technology is entirely neutral is slowly being undermined, often by whistleblowers from within the now multi-billion dollar social media companies. Tech insiders have revealed the way programmers have exploited our brain's natural reward system to hook us to our feeds what some call brain hacking. And our compulsive need to stay engaged has so penetrated our lives that billions of us around the world are suffering from nomophobia, a fear of being separated from our phones and accounts even for a few hours. Consequently, our lives have changed entirely with far-reaching implications in how we build relationships, value ourselves and map out our life expectations. Whether the new technology has been engineered to manipulate human psychology or not, the way in which we use it deserves more scrutiny. In the book, Catherine Omarod looks at the way social media, I'm just going to read the title of the chapters, Why Social Media is Ruining Your Identity. Here, very, very strong female identity within the contemporary society. The next chapter, why social media is ruining your body image. And I think that goes for men and for women, especially in the formative teenage years. Why social media is ruining your health. Why social media is ruining your relationships. Why social media is ruining motherhood. I'm going to come back to that after the ad break just to read a few things that I found shocking but might be part of people listening to the show's life. Why social media is ruining your career and money. And why social media is ruining your politics. And that's pretty scary as well. If you think that democracy can be undermined by Facebook. As is coming out in the American government's hearings into the 2016 elections. And then the epilogue. How social media is changing your future. At the end of every chapter there is a list of what to do. In order to get claw control. Claw your control back over your own life. I'll be back with a little bit of how social media is ruining motherhood after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. As promised before the ad break, we're going to read from Why Social Media is Ruining Your Life by Catherine Omarad. From the chapter Why Social Media is Ruining Motherhood. I found this pretty shocking. In a an essay called The Act of Becoming a Mother, Crowd Birthing and Bounce Back Bodies. Once upon a time, women gave birth either at home or in hospital in female-only environments with the father pacing outside with cigars on hand ready for the mother and baby doing well exhale. Fast forward to the social media age and the tableau looks remarkably different. Detailing your child's birth in ever more cinematic formats has increasingly become the norm. And in the blink of an eye, there's been a mainstream acceptance that something which was once one of life's most private, behind closed door moments, is now appropriate to air to your friends, family and extended public audience. In 20, a 2013 survey conducted by a baby photo agency found that on average, a newborn baby has his or her image uploaded to social media within 57.9 minutes of birth just shy of an hour into life, showing just how dramatically the etiquette around birth has evolved. Now, I could have chosen any topic just to show how social media has changed 
etiquette around birth, something so private in so short a time span shows you the impact of social media. She continues, as parents seek out shareable content to mark the birth of their baby, birth videos have become a booming business. The presence of professional photographers or videograph or videograph videographers in the delivery room is no longer a rarity, and parents even work with specialized video editors to pull together their birth form story. Anyone expect anyone expecting will be inundated across social media with studio photographers and birth filmmakers offering deals on full birth documentary documentary coverage, taking cues from celebrities and influencers who have often brought their followers along with them in their pregnancy journeys and want to share the ins and outs of the climax culturally that counts as TMR has drastically shifted. Images of full frontal disclosure, we're talking shots of the placenta and babies crowning here, have been popping up across my Instagram and Facebook for months now. This is, in my mind, so shocking and it's happened within a very, very short time span. How social media, we talk about its, in, its impact and how, how it can possibly be the cause for so much teenage um, depression and, and possibly suicide. Uh, the fact that teenagers no longer go out for social activities because they're connected to all their friends all the time on WhatsApp or on Instagram. But to think about how birth has totally, totally changed because of social media. That's just one of many things that I found very shocking and a reason for, 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 for people to start engaging with their own personal responsibility over their social media usage and claw back control of our lives from our devices. In the book, Catherine Amorod finishes every chapter off with some take-outs, um, I'm just quickly paging through over here in the chapter why social media is ruining your identity. She then has some takeaways. Uh, and she's got four or five, five short little essays on takeaways, what we can do to claw back our control over our own identity and then over our relationships and then over our motherhood or over our whatever it is, our jobs, our careers, our, our lifestyles and our politics. So a very topical book again. Very important. I think this should be required reading for most people, uh, parents, teenagers, people in education. We need to get a grip on how social media is totally changing the way that life is lived. Now, for the last 10 minutes of the show, we're going to do something totally, totally different. I've got three books that I think can be grouped together in a subgenre what I'll call adult fairy tales. Now, I'm not being frivolous. I'm not being uh, escapist because sometimes difficult issues can be dealt with or really human issues can be dealt with through the medium of fiction, sometimes not just literary fiction or commercial fiction, but even through fantasy fiction. We can deal with big issues. I think a lot of misunderstanding of fantasy and science fiction is that people think it's just absolute escapism. I think a lot of great science fiction and a lot of great fantasy deals with real human needs, emotions, uh, character traits, 
interactions between people just in a fantasy setting. So we're going to look at fairy tales for adults. The first one, and the first two actually have very, very strong Jewish themes. The first one is called Spinning Silver. It's by Naomi Novik. She's the author of Uprooted. And this is dark, well, dark magic claim their home. Miriam is the daughter of a moneylender, but her father's too kind-hearted to collect his debts. They face poverty until Miriam hardens her own heart and takes up her father's work in their village. Her success at collecting his debts creates rumors that she can turn silver into gold, which attracts the fairy king of winter himself. He sets Miriam an impossible challenge, and if she fails, she dies. Yet if she triumphs, it could mean a fate worse than death. And in her desperate efforts to succeed, Miriam unwittingly involves the unhappy daughter of a lord. Irina's father schemes to wed her to the Tsar. However, the dashing ruler hides a terrible secret that threatens mortals and winter alike. Torn between deadly choices, Miriam and Irina embark on a quest that will encompass a sacrifice, power, and love. Now, you can hear... Rumpelstiltskin Redux, and you can also hear in here, there's a strong Jewish element. Just to continue this, winter is, a grow, is growing longer each year in the countryside. Now, we, we talk, we're talking about an Eastern European countryside here, as in many, many, many fairy tales. Um, where a 16-year-old girl fretting about her mother is ill, uh, who's fretting because, sorry, because her mother is ill and her father is an inept moneylender, decides to take on collecting the debts herself and immediately discovers that she is excellent at business. She grows a bit proud and so draws the attention of a king of winter who wants her for her alchemy to turn his wintry silver into summery gold. Here Naomi Novik has gathered countless old tales and turned them into something all kinds of new. The theft of summer, a burning demon who lives inside a prince, a witch's hut in the woods, the secret power of names, the frozen winter road that winds its way through the depths of the forest, they're all here. But she also borrows our everyday she also borrows our everyday truths. The way a family can disintegrate into violence, the way a ghetto can be disappeared, how the everyday persecution of Jews can erupt into mass violence, the magic of young children becoming people the creation of food and clothing and blankets and shelter from plants and animals. In this melding, our moneylender and the Tsarina of the realm, as far apart as two people can be, but each in unholy trouble with the man, find a way to help themselves and each other. The book is about the, t the, t the determination and quiet competence of women doing remarkable things without knowing first that they can do them. I'd weave a net out of us to hold all the country, one of the heroine's promises halfway through, long before we suspect that she can. The richness of ideas and the unbelievably richness uh, and comprehensiveness of the world that Naomi Novik has created in Spinning Silver make it into an even more enjoyable read. It's fairy tales, but definitely for, for adults. And uh, it is available in the shops, and it will make you a newfound fan of Naomi Novik. I'll be back with the remaining two fairy tales for adults straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM.
We're looking at adult fairy tales. We've looked at Naomi Novik's Spinning Silver, set in Eastern European fantasy realm, very strongly based on Lithuanian countryside, Ukrainian countryside, Rumpelstiltskin, and a few other elements all thrown in, but not served as a pastiche, but as something new, bold, and very, very, very creative. The next book, also with a very strong Jewish theme, slightly more Hasidish, is called The Sisters of the Winter Wood by Rena Rosner. Rena Rosner was raised in Miami Beach in Florida. All eight of her great-grandparents immigrated to America to escape the pogroms from towns like the Dubosari and Kupel that are mentioned in the novel. It is their story together with her love of Jewish mythology that inspired Rena Rosner to write The Sisters of the Winter Wood. The book is told in alternating chapters and in totally alternating styles, the two sisters, the two Jewish sisters growing up just outside the, of a, a, a little town, Dubosori, in the Ukrainian countryside. And they've got very different natures, and even the way that the two types of the, the alternating chapters are written. One, the sister Liba, which is prose, and then the next sister Leia, which is poetry. So you've got prose, then poetry, then prose, then poetry. And we track their story like this through the book. Their father is a very, very different type of a man. He's very religious, he's he's Hasidic, but he stays apart from the men of the town. And his wife is a convert. But once again, the family feels their different their differentness from the rest of the Jewish community and from the Ukrainians in the close by town of Dubasori. The girls growing up know that they are different, but they don't know why. And they feel dark urges in their dreams at night. Liba very strongly feels like her father and she's drawn to things that relate to bears and then that's Liba Leia very light like her mother blonde and she relates to the birds in the forests Uh, their parents have family secrets that they're not sharing with their daughters and when the father and the mother are called away to go to the close by town of Kupal where the father's father who's a Hasidic Rebbe, is on his deathbed. All of a sudden, the girl's left alone in the, in the forest with the Ukrainian town, with the Jewish and the non-Jewish people, and then with a band of very mysterious uh, and very, very seductive men selling the most exotic fruits. Brings all the deep-seated... Uh, secrets that the girls don't know about to the fore and they have to find their way through mythology Jewish mythologies that they are living out through their family's connections to the wildlife of the area through Jewish and also Ukrainian uh, society and belief systems to what their true natures are it's a very creative novel as I said, with a very strong Eastern European and Jewish and Hasidic theme 
themes running the whole way through. It's very different from anything that you've ever read before, very creative. And Rena Rosner at the end writes how the stories that her grandparents told her and their migration from Ukraine to America and their attempts to keep some of the life that they knew alive through storytelling really made the foundation of this book. And then from there she wrote the book with a lot of research into the Jewish mythologies and into Ukrainian mythologies from that specific part of Ukraine, which informed her writing. So those are, we didn't get through all three. Then we got through two of the adult fairy tales, Spinning Silver by Naomi Novik and The Sisters of the Winter Wood by Rosa Rezno. I wanted to also do Time's Convert by Deborah Harkness, who's the author of the best-selling All Souls trilogy. We have to keep that for next week. And until next week, it's time to wish everyone good Shabbos. Uh, it's just after the weekend on Monday and until next week on Friday just keep reading and debating and working through the ideas that delivered to us on the pages of a book Good Shabbos